Today we've come to the end of a series we've been doing of seven or eight weeks on the foundations of our faith, where I've been trying to give a, a quick survey of what Christian teaching is about. And this time we come to the, uh, what I've entitled The End of the Age. Sometimes it's called The Last Things or The Things to Come. And my goal for today is to answer common questions and give us clarity about what happens between now and the end of the age. I'm going to list some common questions and I'm going to work through some of the answers in relevant scriptures and then focus on the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Now, I want to tell you, I risk making many enemies today because in terms of what divides Christians, this is commonly what people get upset about. And um, so please let's not get divided on this. Um, uh, I'm sure that all of us need to grow in our understanding in this area, including me. So um, if we're going to disagree, let's do it in love and humility. And we're going to have this conversation today on the basis of scripture, not on the basis of what, you know, my, my preconceived ideas, and let's uh, try and lay it out like that. So I'm going to start off by suggesting some common questions on the subject, and then we'll work through those and uh, end up with the scripture of um, the, uh, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. So I've divided them into three groups. The first group of questions is, what happens between now and the last day? So, could Jesus come tonight? Could he come in secret? A second one, will there be a secret rapture before the end? Will somehow the Christians be mysteriously taken out of this world before the end? If I die before Christ's return, what will happen to me? What about near-death experiences? What's going on with those? Are they real? So those are my first set of questions. The next one, the day of judgment um, will Christians be judged? Uh, and if so, what basis will they be judged? What, uh, what of people who love God but never heard of Jesus? Is there a reward? And if there is, for what? So those are day of judgment questions. And then heaven questions. Um, will we have material bodies? What will we do with our time? Will married people still be married? Will there even be male or female? Um, will we recognize each other? Um, will we have the same personalities, including the irritating parts of us? <laughs> There's nobody here that has any irritating parts of their personality, so that's purely hypothetical. So, we're going to be concentrating on Matthew 24 and 25, where Jesus gives a really solid piece of teaching about his return. And uh, I'm going to introduce us at the, uh, in chapter 24, and we're going to jump through to verse 27. Jesus has been talking about sufferings up to this point. The sufferings are going to happen, and then... Um, he introduces the, the, the topic of his return and he brings it in with a, if you like, with a title. But just like the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. In other words, not secret or quiet, something that's quite 
evident and spectacular to everyone. Then he, he kind of, that's like his title, and then he kind of gives a little bit of background. Immediately after the suffering of those days, that's what he'd just been talking about, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So, this is the, the kind of thing that's happening when he returns in this description. It doesn't seem to me to be very secret. It seems to me that Jesus is going out of his way to say, this is very, very evident to everybody when I come again. Um, the image of lightning, the image of, uh, of um, coming in clouds, and the image is a loud trumpet blast and gathering the elect. Now, uh, what about this gathering the elect, gathering his people from one end of, of heaven to the other? So, in other words, from the whole of, of reality, he's going to gather his people together. What, what is that? What's going on there? Um, uh, it says, it's going to come back to that in just a minute, but it's just describing that up to this point in time, people are not expecting it. It's not, they're not prepared for it, for just like the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and took them all away. It will be the same at the coming of the Son of Man. So what he's saying is there's going to be this tremendous, highly visible return, but right up to that moment, things are going to be carrying on as normal. So in some ways, they're going to be carrying on as normal. People will be living their life as if nothing, no disaster is going to be happening at this point. And so that's, that's important. But then he describes what some people call the rapture. Um, he says, Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one left. There'll be two women grinding grain with a mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay alert because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And so I just, so I just wanted to say that this, uh, two women, uh, grinding grain and one will be taken away and that, that kind of imagery was the basis for some books and some movies that came out a few decades ago called Left Behind. I don't know if you've heard of those. Well, I'm going to suggest that I do, I want to have respect for the people who produced that, but this is unpacking what he'd said in verse 37. In verse 37, it says, he will send his angels out with a loud trumpet blast. They'll gather his elect. And now it's describing in verse 41 and 42 how this will happen. And that you can get two people uh, who one's saved and one's not. One's going to be gathered and one isn't. But this isn't some kind of secret pri- private thing there where, you know, you're, you're at work and one day suddenly your coworker just vanishes. Oh, it turned out that they were a Christian and you weren't and they're gone. No, this is a, this is all part of a story Jesus is telling, which is very, very public and unmistakable that Jesus is coming again. 
or one event. Um, so I have a respect for people who have different views. Just my personal view is there's not some sort of secret disappearing of Christians before Jesus' return. I think it's simpler than that. Um, I think the story is that uh, people keep on living their life as if there's going to be no end of time. And there are various, um, there are, um, I believe there's going to be what the Bible calls tribulations, difficult times, but the, Jesus will come again to end that and to end the powers of darkness. And uh, if you want to know more about what I believe on this, come on Tuesday nights because I'm unpacking the book of Revelation on Tuesday nights. And uh, if you're interested in what I did last Tuesday, I'll send you the link to the video. But I'm not going to spend any more time on that because that's really what I'm talking about on Tuesday nights. Um, so... Um, that's my view of the, the basics of what happens when Jesus returns. That's the kind of overview of it. Now, if I die before Jesus returns, what's going to happen to me? We have some good biblical data on that. Um, although the Bible often uses the word sleep to refer to death, it seems that's talking about the physical body, not where somebody is in their mind, because uh, there are a number of places where Jesus talks about this. So the man next to him on the cross, the robber who died next to him, Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today I will be with you in paradise. So he's going to be in paradise. And then Paul talks about, you know, should he live or should he die? If he die, he knows he's got a job to do here. But if he, li- he dies, he will be with Christ, which is far better. He doesn't say, I'll go into 2,000 years of soul sleep and then I'll be with Christ. So uh, it's an immediate thing. Um, and uh, Paul talks about, I'm sorry, there's another, there's a few other references that refer to this kind of thing. Um, we don't know about unbelievers. If somebody's not a believer, what happens to them? It's not completely clear about that, but there is a lot of clarity about believers. So this raises a question that people ask, what about near-death experiences? More and more information is coming out about near-death experiences, some of it very well documented, and what happens is somebody is in a place where they're clinically dead and they come back and they've had all kinds of experiences. Well, I want to say that the fact of these experiences is a serious challenge to atheists because there are some extraordinary, just on a medical level, this person you know, had no pulse for like two hours and they then came back and recounted all sorts of things that had been happening that they couldn't have known. And so that's a problem for an atheist. But I want to say that I don't think we can extract what heaven is like from these stories because I think often they're very much interpreted according to their own, um, their own, their own beliefs and their own interpretations. And so what they might see, there may be some truth in what they might see, but it may be fuzzy. So I don't think we should try and construct uh, a you know, biblical doctrine of the last things on the basis of what people who've had these experiences tell us. I think the main purpose they serve is just to put into question the, the atheistic idea of, you know, we're just like a, an animal that dies and it's gone. Um, so... Uh, what about the next question then I've got, the next set of questions is what about the day of judgment? Um, will Christians be judged? What of people who love God but never heard of Jesus? Is there a reward and for what? 
So I'm going to move on to the next chapter of Matthew, chapter 25, and we're going to look at a significant passage in there which describes the last judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be assembled before him and he will separate people one from another like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you in prison, sick or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, I tell you the truth, just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you're cursed, into eternal fire that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not receive me as a guest. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not give you whatever you needed? And he'll answer to them, I tell you the truth, just as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will depart into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So every single account in the scriptures where it tells us the basis for judgment on the last day, the, the basis for making a decision about whether someone is a believer or not, every single one will be on whether we love. That might seem shocking to you, but that's what it says. But I want to argue that it's not about whether we've, we've done enough loving, you know, we've, we've accumulated enough love points in our life to make it by. That's not what it's about. I think it's something significantly different to that. Let me tell a story. Um, two weeks ago, I returned to Canada, and when I came in at the airport, uh, there's the place you can go to if you have a Canadian passport. So I went up to immigration, and the man behind the immigration desk didn't say, you don't look Canadian enough to me. Let me hear you say, A. You know, he, I don't get tested on like, you know, I have a passport, you know, and this is my passport, and this is the evidence that I'm Canadian. Like, this is pretty good evidence. I'm a Canadian. It's got my picture on it. It's, it's the passport. And what I'm going to argue is this kind of love is the evidence that Jesus is in us. It's not that we have to work up enough. It's that we have it or we don't. It's something that's given to us. Um, so 
I want to argue this on the basis of other places in Scripture where it talks about this. And one of the best places, one of the clearest places, is in 1 John, which also speaks about, about the Day of Judgment. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What this say, is saying is that if you, look at, if you did a DNA test on somebody... You could tell, you can tell who their parents are. If you do a DNA test on a person in terms of love, you can tell whether they're born of God or not. And what is happening here on the Day of Judgment is that it's, a, it's like a DNA test. What is the evidence? What's there that shows whether you're born of God or not? Because love is of God, it says. And it goes on. We know, we have come to know and to believe that the love of God, ha- the love that God has in us, God is love, and the one who resides in love resides in God, and God resides in him. So to be born of God, in other words, have God's spiritual DNA, means you have something in you which is unique. It's not about whether you've scored enough points trying to love people. That's not what it's about. It's about whether you actually belong to God. So on the day of judgment, this is the test. And the last verse in this I'm going to quote, by this love, By this, love is brought to completion within us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. There's the day of judgment again, because just as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. This sounds a bit odd to say we have confidence in the day of judgment. Like, can anybody be confident? What it's saying is here, when you notice that there's a kind of love that's in you, that like wasn't there to begin with. It's not naturally you. This is something that's, that's been put there. Something that's something from above. Something from God. And you notice that that's love in you. That can give you confidence that you are of God. That you're born of God. And that on the day of judgment, this will be seen. This will be evidence. So, you need God residing in you. You need God residing in you in order to be accepted on the day of judgment. You don't get to heaven by trying to love, but by having God's spirit in you producing love. You need to be born of God. And so if you have concerns about the day of judgment today, I would urge you, you need to ask God that you will be born again. And don't give up asking until you see his life is in you. Say, God, I can't do it this myself. I need you to change me and put your life in me. And cry to him until you know he's done that. So the question then, the next question is, what of people who love God but never heard of Jesus? And this is a difficult and contentious issue. And I'm going to throw out some some thoughts of myself, and you may or may not disagree with me, but this is what I think the principles are. I want to say salvation is only through Jesus. Salvation is only through Jesus. Yet, um, before Jesus came, people were saved in Old Testament times who didn't know the name of Jesus. Abraham never knew the name of Jesus, yet he was saved because of Jesus, what he was saved because he trusted in whatever God gave him to do. Now, in Acts uh, 17, Paul is preaching in Athens and he says, in times past, um, 
God overlooked the fact that you, you didn't know Jesus, but now Jesus is presented to you. I'm bringing his, him to you, and you have to make a choice. Are you going to follow him or not? And I think that this is um, a, a geographical thing, that as the muse of the gospel went out, um, suddenly the question became, you have, this is a clear presentation of Jesus, and you have to, to either respond or not to that. So um, we have in, in Acts chapter 10 the story of a man called Cornelius. And Cornelius didn't know who Jesus was. He was a Roman, and he was doing the best that he could. And uh, he, uh, he had a vision from God. And the vision, God said to him, I have heard your prayers, and I'm going to send somebody to tell you. And he sent Peter. Peter came and told him, and he told him about Jesus. And, of course, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. But the fact is, the principle here is that God heard Cornelius, even though Cornelius didn't know Jesus' name. And Cornelius was just seeking. He was crying out to God, and God respected that. And um, I want to suggest to you that God is still doing that. So uh, I'm, I'm interested in this question, and I've kind of gathered some stories that support this idea. One of them, um, back um, in the 1800s, uh, Gladys Aylward, I think actually it was the early 1900s, Gladys Aylward, who was a missionary from the UK, was um, visiting some very, very remote parts of Western China. And... Uh, she uh, was. She she found a Buddhist monastery there, and the Buddhist Buddhist monastery. They had several a number of years before somehow got hold of this little piece of paper which had John three sixteen on it in their language, and for years they'd been puzzling about what this meant. And when she brought and they, they'd been asking, you know, what? Please, we want to know more. We want to know more. And God sent. Gladys Aylward to this remote part to this monastery and when she arrived she told them about Jesus and there was just mass revival broke out they were ready but God had God had respected he listened to their prayers and there's a principle that if you seek God he will be found by those who seek him and so those people were seeking God and God sent them somebody to give them the answer so another story I heard from a, a man called Jock Purvis, who was um, doing exploration slash missionary work in Baltistan, which is uh, area of Himalayas, which is some people call it the rooftop of the world. It's one of the most isolated places there is, and he was he was just exploring this area and going from village to village. And some villages you could only get to by climbing rope ladders up the cliffs. It was so remote, and he heard that. Um, there was a dying man who wanted to hear him in another village, and he made the trek there, and he got there, and this man told him that um, uh, years ago he, was, he got these, these scriptures, and he wanted them read to him before he died. And they unwrapped this, these cloths, and in the middle was, some, was, was part of the Bible. In his language, they've got no idea how it got to that village. I mean, it was just unbelievable, but it was there. And he read it to him, and this man came to know Jesus, trusted in Jesus, and then he died. God is incredibly creative about how he brings the message to people. I heard of another man who was in Australia, and this was about 1890, and he was in the desert part, 
in middle of Australia in Outback. And he was walking along and he was actually at this time he was in depression and he was thinking about committing suicide. And he saw something being blown along in the wind and it looked like a piece of newspaper and it was being blown along and then it stopped. It caught, caught on something. So he went up and got it. And it was a piece of newspaper from Sydney. And it was somebody in Sydney had decided to print out gospel sermons on newspapers as advertisements. And he read this and came to know God through this. God is so creative about how he gets his message to people. I don't think there's ever anybody going to be able to say to God, I wanted to find you and you didn't let me. We're going to be astounded when we find out how God has got the message to people. But I'll send you the most uh, surprising story to last. Um, so uh, there was a man in Scotland who was, uh, he had a number of friends who were Christians and they told him the gospel message and he just wasn't at all interested. And one day he was walking along the cliffs uh, just near the, near the shoreline and along, he was just going for a walk along the top of the cliffs and the side of the cliff gave way and he fell. And as he was quite high cliffs, as he was falling, he realized that he was going to die. And he went, I mean, they say your mind works very quickly when you know you're going to die, because this must have. Because in that time, he realized that he was wrong about God and asked for God's forgiveness and received acceptance from God and the knowledge that God had saved him and just felt God's peace flood him. And then... He hit this huge pile of seaweed that was so big and bouncy that he didn't even break anything. He was able to get up and walk away. So he, he, um, he went back to, uh, you know, when he got, got back up the cliff and so on, he went back to his friends and he told them the story. And of course, we wouldn't know this story unless he'd survived, of course. But he said to them, I believe that God kept me from dying so that this story would be preserved. So that you would never think that somebody had never, you'd never be able to say, I know that person was never saved. Because you would have thought, I was, you know, I, I was never saved, wouldn't you? And of course they had to agree, because you know, somebody you know is not a Christian falls off a cliff and dies, you assume that they, you know, they were never saved. And he says, I think God deliberately preserved me so that you would, um, would know this. And I, I had a friend who, who came, who asked me, their father was in a coma. And she said, you know, my father's not a Christian. He's in a coma. Is there any hope for him? And I said, yes, there is. God is not limited. We can never say we know until the last day. So I want to say to you that um, this question about who God will save, people are only saved by the name of Jesus Christ. But I think we are going to be amazed at God's grace and power on the last day. Nevertheless, we should do everything we can to get the name of God uh, out and told and and people know about him. So, um, let's. uh, the next question I had was rewards. Well, yes, apparently there are rewards in heaven, a number of scriptures tell us. But then you say, but if everything's God, like God does everything, why do I deserve a reward when anything I could have, anything I have that's good, is a gift of God? And the answer is we don't know why God decides to give us rewards for things that he's done in us, but that's what it says. And the best picture of what the rewards are, are their responsibilities. 
So we have a, um, we have a, a, um, a parable about the talents and the reward for those who make, multiply their talents is given responsibilities in heaven. So that seems to be what it's about. Another way of describing it is we all have cups, but some people, and every single one of us, our cup will be overflowing. We will, none of us will feel we've been shortchanged, but some people will have bigger cups than others. So I don't think anybody's going to be disappointed and say, you know, I was expecting a bigger reward than I got. We're all going to be, we're all going to be overwhelmed at what God has given us and very satisfied. But I think some people will be ready for more responsibility. And I'm sure we'll grow in our responsibilities anyway. Um, the, then the last set of questions I have is about heaven. Um, will we have material bodies? Um, this is a, a question. Um, what, what will we do with our time? Will married people still be married? Will we have male and female in heaven? Will we recognize each other in heaven? Um, and will we have the same personalities? So there are two extremes in the first question. One extreme says that our current material world will continue, and when God comes and destroys everything, that's only kind of like purging the surface. And in fact, he's just going to do a remake, and we'll have the same, basically the same atoms and molecules. The other extreme says, no, everything's going to be like spiritual. No material anymore. It's all going to be, we're all going to be spirits floating around. And I think both of those are wrong. And the reason I think they're wrong is because Jesus had a material body and he was the firstborn of the new creation. He had a new creation body. And it says, when we see him, we will be like him. We will have bodies like him. So he had a body he could eat. But it was different. His body, he could, he could go through walls. His body wasn't subject to decay like ours is. And that's very clear. Paul talks about in Corinthians about, um, the man of dust being Adam and subject to decay and us having immortality, the man of the spirit. But so I believe we're going to have physical material bodies, but they will not be made of the same kind of atoms and molecules that this this age is made of. There'll be something different that is mortal, that is transcendent, that we obviously can't understand because we don't live in that realm. But Jesus is a little glimpse into what that is going to be. And so, yes, I think we will, but different. What would we do with our time? There are a few hints that we will have responsibilities. And I don't, I don't think that the big story is that God spends, you know, infinite time preparing for this earth and then we have a few thousand years of, of, uh, of this earth and then we have like infinite time doing nothing for eternity. I think that God has got more plans and more things he wants to do. And once this earth is finished, God has got even more amazing things that he wants to do. You know, maybe more worlds, maybe more stories, maybe more, more, in a whole universe as he wants to create, but we are part of that process. And all I can give as a biblical basis for that is a few places where it talks about responsibilities like us judging, um, us ruling, but also the parable of the talents where we're, we're put in charge of cities or you know, responsibilities. So that's how I would understand that. 
The, the next question, will married people still be married? That's got a very easy answer because somebody tried to trip up Jesus with that question. They said, what if somebody's been married and then divorced and then, they, you know, because their spouse died and they're married and then that spouse dies and then they're married and that spouse dies. Who are they going to be married to in heaven? And Jesus said, we won't have marrying in heaven. There won't be marrying in heaven. He didn't say we won't be male or female in heaven. So I, I'm not sure exactly what, whether that's the case or not. He said we'll be as the angels, so it maybe we won't be male or female, I'm not completely sure. But what I will say is that our personalities will be the same. We'll be the same people. We won't be like starting again as, as people. But I would say that in answer to the last question, yeah, of course, the irritating parts will be gone. And so if you can imagine somebody with the good parts, but yes, Bill's raising his hand. So if you can imagine Bill with all the good parts of him, but not the irritating parts of him, then thanks, Bill, for bringing yourself as a marketer. Uh, <laughs> so um, we'll take your question at the end. Um, so you can imagine somebody without the irritating parts, then that's how they'll be. Now, the fourth question there, will we recognize each other? This is a more difficult one because the disciples didn't recognize Jesus. The two disciples walking with him on the road to Emmaus in the end of Luke didn't recognize him until he broke bread and suddenly they recognized him. And I would, I would suggest this is because when we get a new body, Supposing we die at age 70, we won't get the new body looking like a 70-year-old. We'll get a new body looking in our prime. Whatever you choose as your prime age, that's what we'll be. And so Jesus was resurrected as Jesus in his prime. And so, you know, they're used to seeing a much older Jesus. And so they don't immediately recognize him. But then they do. Of course, it's Jesus. But you know, he's much younger. And so I would suggest to you that that is how it will be, that... In fact, not even in our prime, even because some people, even in their prime, maybe, you know, maybe they haven't had good diets and they don't look perfect. I would say in our prime, plus will be perfect. So no blemishes, you know, no disabilities. We will be, we will be perfect in every way. And so, um, so I think we will, we may have trouble, at least to start with recognizing one another, but we've got a whole eternity to do it. So. I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll be, we'll be okay with that. Um, so, uh, let's just go back to my list, uh, to start with common questions, working through some answers, and I want to end by focusing on the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. So, Matthew and, um, chapter 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them are foolish and five were wise. When the foolish ones took their lamps, they did not take extra olive oil with them. But the wise one took flasks of olive oil with their lamps. When the bridegroom was delayed a long time, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, look! The bridegroom is here. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there won't be enough for you and for us. Go instead 
to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they had gone to buy, the bridegroom arrived and those who were ready went inside with him to the wedding banquet. Then the door was shut. Later, the other virgins came too, saying, Lord, Lord, let us in. But he replied, to tell you the truth, I do not know you. Therefore, stay alert, because you do not know the day or the hour. So here's a story, probably most of you are familiar with this story. I've been asked on multiple occasions, what on earth is this story about? So I think it's important for us today, and we'll talk about what it's about. The first thing is, um, what is the cultural background? And uh, what's happening? And uh, there's a, a, an amazing book called uh, Stories with Intent, where the author has collected together everything we know about every parable in terms of cultural background, uh, reports um, in ancient times, archaeological evidence, everything we possibly know, and is a great section on this parable. And he says that, that wedding practices tend to vary regionally, even locally, and so you can't be dogmatic about what was happening, but this is probably what was happening, that uh, they would... Often there would be a celebration at the bride's home, and then the bri- there would be this procession with the bride uh, and the bridegroom to the home they were going to live at, the final home, and there they would meet up with some the, with the, the bridegroom's attendants, and they would have another celebration. So two banquets, and both of those banquets could be of indeterminate length, you know, maybe several days. And so these attendants who are waiting at the bridegroom's home, you know, they've just got to wait until this first feast finishes, and they don't know when that's going to happen. And so they're waiting and waiting and waiting, and they have this role to perform, and then eventually the bridegroom and the bride and this entourage appear, and then the second part of the celebration occurs. Um, So that's probably what's happening. Uh, Next question people ask is, what does the oil represent? And I want to suggest to you that um, that we're in danger sometimes of trying to spiritualize everything in a parable. There are only two other parables that mention olive oil. And one of them is a clever businessman who tries to to sell, to mark down 3,000 liters of olive oil and sell them for 1,500 as the price of 1,500 liters. And the olive oil doesn't have any special significance like the Holy Spirit. He's not trying to sell the Holy Spirit. It's just olive oil. And the other example is the story of the rich man, uh, sorry, the um, the uh, good Samaritan, where the man is injured and the Samaritan comes along and washes the man's wounds and cleans them up using oil and wine, which is probably all he has with him, and he uses it to clean up the wounds. So again, it's just part of the story. It's not significant in some special way. So I'm going to suggest to you that this oil doesn't represent the Holy Spirit or something like that, because otherwise, what does it mean to go out and buy some more? Like, that would be a bit bizarre if they could buy some. Um, So it's just oil. In fact, what it really signifies is being prepared for their job, their their role in the future. Their role is um, lighting the way, and the oil is what they need for their role in the future. Um, So... I don't think the parable is trying to teach us that if we use up all of our supplies of the Holy Spirit, we're in trouble. Okay? So if we're clear on that. Um, I don't think it has a mystical meaning. So what does it mean then? Um, what do the foolish virgins represent? What are we supposed to learn from this story? 
So, here's what I think. I think that the foolish virgins had missed the whole point of what their purpose was. Their job was to light the way for the bridegroom and bride and their entourage. That was their job. And like, can you imagine doing that and you haven't actually bothered to get oil to start with? That's why it's foolish. I would say they represent people who are joining God's people outwardly, but hadn't even thought why they were there. So somebody who's here, they come every week to church, and they're here in our midst, and they're just with us socially. But they've actually not even thought, you know, one day the bridegroom's going to come, and I need to be prepared for that. They haven't done that. How foolish is that? How foolish is it to, to outwardly associate with God's people and not actually take account of what the purpose of the gathering is? They don't represent Christians, but those who are caught up in a Christian lifestyle but are not ready to meet God. Caught up in a Christian lifestyle but not ready to meet God. And I will say, how foolish is that? Um, So if I want to summarize the meaning of this parable, I would say wisdom is being defined by being prepared for the age to come. Jesus says, saying, this is wisdom. If you want to know what it is to be wise, the wise person is living in the light of Jesus' return. That is what wisdom is. And uh, what is this wisdom then in practice? Well, uh, I've got some quotes here from the book I, I mentioned. Um, Living as a wise human means being prepared for God's reign. Readiness is an attitude, a commitment, and a lifestyle It means living in ways that comport with the character of the kingdom and being faithful at all times. And this is from Stories with Intent. Um, So what if you don't, how do you get this oil? What if you say, you know, I'm not sure I have this oil. How do I get this oil? Well, as I was preparing this message, I was doing some Googling and thinking, I'm interested to see, see what people say. And one of the things I hit was a Mormon website. Now, I'm not, I'm not, you know, primarily trying to, to bash other religious groups, but I thought that, you know, we're told to warn against false teaching. And what they said, what I thought was very interesting, because they had a very specific answer to this problem. And I'm just going to quote what they said. So this is the Mormon president, Spencer W. Kimball. And he said, in our lives, the oil of preparedness is accumulated drop by drop in righteous living. Attendance at sacrament meetings adds oil to our lamps drop by drop over the years. In other words, coming to church. Fasting, family prayer, home teaching, control of bodily appetites. And he goes on listing some things that you can do to add drops of oil. So in other words, you have to perform in order to get this oil. And uh, I wanted to, to, to quote this because it brings with such clarity what is not the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is that we are saved by grace and not by doing our work. And I want to end by uh, going right to the very end of the book of Revelation, the last few verses of the book of Revelation, where Jesus gives his answer as to how we get the oil. Now, the oil there is, there are different images, and he's using the water of life 
instead of the image of oil. Remember when Jesus was at the well with the, the woman from Samaria, and he talks about, I can give you water which will spring up into eternal life, living water. And so living water, oil, it's really, it's the same. It's just two different pictures of the same thing. It's what gives us eternal life. And here at the end of Revelation, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So what does he say? Actually, he, Jesus says, I am the living water. You get this by coming to me and asking me, and I will give it to you without price if you give your life to me. And so that is the, the message that the book of Revelation and indeed the whole scriptures have about how we obtain what we need to uh, have our lamps full at this point in judgment. So uh, I want to summarize then by saying what I want everyone here to have is wisdom. The wisdom of the wise virgins. And the wisdom of the wise virgins is living your life in the knowledge that Jesus is coming again and that there is an eternity ahead of us and this world is such a transient world. And everything of this, this in, happens in this world is valued in terms of how it impinges on eternity. That is true wisdom. And my prayer is that everyone here will have true wisdom. But what I'd like to do is to just open it up for some questions right now. And uh, uh, I realize there's probably some questions tonight. It's okay if you disagree with me, that's fine. But let's, I know Bill has got one. So Bill, do you want to start off? So excellent question. What makes, what, what makes me think that we'll have jobs in heaven? So um, this, and you've made a really good connection with the Garden of Eden because Adam had work in the garden, but it was work of pleasure, not work of hard work. It wasn't until the fall that his work turned into something negative, but um, in the garden it was a pure delight to uh, express and to, to arrange it for beauty. I, 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 my, my opinion is. And so it will be that kind of thing that we'll be doing. Yeah. Yes. So the Tower of Babel, which divided everybody's language, will be reversed so we all can speak easily in one another's language. Oh, I should say another reason why I believe we will have things to do is because we are created in the image of God. And every one of you here has got creativity in you. Every one of you here has got a desire for purpose, to do something, to achieve something, because it's being godlike to do that. And that won't suddenly evaporate, and you suddenly you've got no desires, no ambitions, no particular feeling to be creative. No, that creativity will come to new levels in heaven. And, you know, if you felt yourself that you'd like to be an artist when you're on this earth, but you've never really developed that skill, you'll get to develop that in glory. You'll get to develop those skills that, that, that God has put in you. I won't say that the arts are going to be exactly the same as the arts here, but art as a, as it, as a, a God-like thing is in us and will be expressed. Will we remember our lives on earth while in heaven? Um, so... We're beginning to, uh, this is a, a good question, but I think we're beginning to kind of speculate. My, my guess is that we will, but I don't think we will have regrets because we will see that God, how, worked, um, how God worked everything out.
Um, so we will actually learn a lot more about what God was doing positively, which will just fill us with wonder. Yeah. Yeah. So the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So the story of the rich man and Lazarus, he died, and then there's this conversation between him and um, and the, 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 the uh, Lazarus. Um, the reason that I'm hesitant to start um, kind of arguing, you know, detailed things about heaven from that parable is it is a parable. And it's a picture. And the main purpose of the parable is to overturn the idea that rich people are favored by God and the poor are not by actually turning the opposite way around. And so, um, uh, I, I, um, so I would be reluctant. I'd be very cautious to use that as like hard evidence as to what the age to come is going to be like. Okay. So this is the most difficult of the questions that I was hoping nobody would ask. <laughs> Right. So how will we feel about loved ones who are not with us in heaven? That's, um, that's uh, a, that is a very difficult question. So I would say that there are aspects of heaven which we cannot understand here, that we cannot understand because we're just in a different uh, time frame, our different time space universe. It's just, but we do know that there will be, he will wipe all the tears from our eyes. There will be no sorrow in heaven. We know that. And we know that um, we, God will be shown to be good in every way. And uh, so there is that. I think I'm just going to have to leave that question with God and say that somehow there will be no sorrow. And there will be something about it that I don't understand. That when I get to heaven, I'll say, of course, yeah. Yeah, that was the answer to Jessica's question. Of course, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, but we, but I couldn't have known that. I couldn't have known that because, uh, of this. So you imagine, um, when, um, when, uh, Columbus discovered, um, the, uh, the, the Americas, you know, suddenly they had a whole different perspective of, you know, what, what the world was like, which they couldn't have known beforehand, but now they knew and it changed everything. So something will happen which will change everything. And that's best I can do on that. So I think what we're going to do, because it's, is we've been going on a long time now, it's 1250, we're going to, we're not going to end with, uh, with a song. I'm just going to close now in prayer. But I particularly want to pray for wisdom for all of us. That in this coming week, every one of us will be like the wise virgins. That we'll be living in a way in the light. Because it's, it, the, the, the parable is just put it in black and white. You know, you've, you've either got it or you haven't. But actually, you know, some of us are wiser than others, aren't we? And like that we would all be those who, who, are, who are full of wisdom in this way. So, Father, I pray now for each one of us here that we will be wise in living our lives in the light of the fact that you are returning. And you could return at any time. And we pray, God, that we will be prepared for that and we'll be ready for the eternal kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.